We're going to continue now with our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We're in the 10th chapter, and I will begin with verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. Romans 10, beginning at verse 16, I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all of the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of God. Please be seated. Let us pray. O Lord, we have heard that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by Your Word. And we have just heard that Word, and yet we do not always believe the Word that we hear that comes to us from You. Lord, open our hearts tonight that as we consider this portion of Your Word, that we would receive it with faith and trust in it. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We have seen throughout chapter 9 and chapter 10 Paul's great concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Israel. He has already made notice of the prophecy of Hosea of the Old Testament where God would declare to His own people that they are no longer His people, and those who were not His people would become His people. And then the apostle talked about the distribution of the gospel beyond the borders of Israel and into the domain of the Gentiles, and that all who call upon the name of the Lord, be it Jew or Gentile, will be saved. And in our last meeting, we looked at the series of rhetorical questions that the apostle raised. How can they believe in one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear unless somebody preaches it, and how can they proclaim it unless they are sent? 
And he concluded with the reference to the Old Testament prophet, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who publish good tidings and who proclaim God's peace. And it was at that point that we left off. For then now in verse 16, Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed widely, not only to Israel, but even to the Gentile nations. And the point that the apostle makes here is that not everybody who hears the gospel obeys the gospel. That is, not everyone who hears the gospel submits to the gospel or embraces the gospel. Now, one of the things that Paul established at the very beginning of this epistle was that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we are told that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching as His method to save the world. And as we considered the doctrine of election, of predestination, we saw that God ordains from all eternity not only the ends or the destinies of people and nations, but He also decrees from all eternity according to His sovereignty the means to those ends. And we've considered that the primary means that God uses to awaken faith in the hearts of the elect is through the preaching of the gospel. And so it is through the Word, through the preaching of the Word, that faith comes. Now, we've distinguished before the idea of a necessary condition as it differs from a sufficient condition. And my favorite illustration of that distinction is this, if you want to build a fire, a necessary condition for that fire to ignite is the presence of oxygen. If you remove all of the oxygen, the flame goes out. And so oxygen is a necessary condition for the fire. Without it, you can't have the fire. But thanks be to God that oxygen is not a sufficient condition for a fire. Because if that's the case, every time we drew in a breath of air, we would set our lungs on fire. A sufficient condition is this, a condition that if it is present is all that is necessary for the effect to take place. And so what the apostle is saying here is the preaching of the Word is a necessary condition for faith, but it's not a sufficient condition. You can't have faith without it but you can have unbelief even with it. And so the apostle says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And at that point, the prophet Isaiah is uttering a lament To be sure, there was a remnant who believed the report of the suffering servant of Israel. But Isaiah, as every prophet knew well, 
that the Word of God was proclaimed over and over and over again. The report of His gospel was announced. But the question the prophets raised, is there anybody who believes it? Is there anyone who puts their trust in the Word of God? So then the apostle says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Then he goes on, but I say, have they not heard? Of course they've heard. Their sound has gone out to all of the earth, their words to the ends of the world. God had published His gospel throughout the the borders of Israel and beyond the borders of Israel into the Gentile community. And He said, but I say, didn't Israel not know? Moses had said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, and I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So why should it surprise anyone that now the gospel is being proclaimed to the Gentiles? This wasn't a last-minute switch in plans by God. God had told the people of Israel, I'm going to make you jealous because I'm going to take the blessings and the benefits that I've given to you, and I'm taking them across the border. I'm taking them to all nations. And so what is in view here in the first instance is the universal proclamation of the gospel. As Paul just said earlier in this chapter, that all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Now, whenever we consider the doctrine of election, one of the objections that is raised again and again and again is this. If God from all eternity has decreed only to save a certain number of peoples known only to Himself, Isn't there something dishonest about preaching to people universally, offering salvation to all, when in fact God never intended to save all people? What about this business of the universal gospel, offer of the gospel? This touches heavily on the controversy surrounding the doctrine of limited atonement, or what we call definite or particular redemption. The doctrine of limited atonement teaches simply that the atonement of Jesus was not designed by God from all eternity to make salvation possible to all men. That despite what the apostle says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Certainly, it sounds here in Romans that Paul is making that offer of Christ to anyone who believes, and therefore, it is a universal offer. And if a genuine universal offer, then how can we talk about the atonement being limited to certain people? Well, again, I think we all understand that the benefits of the atonement are limited only to those who believe. We're not universalists. The New Testament doesn't believe that Jesus automatically saves everybody in the world. The condition is set forth 
that to receive the benefits of the cross, one must put their trust in Christ. So in the very least, we have to say that the atonement is limited to believers. Jesus doesn't die for everybody indiscriminately. He dies for believers. And then we ask the question, who are the believers? And Paul answers that question for us, that the believers are the elect. All believers who believe they're numbered among the elect, all who are numbered among the elect will surely be brought to faith. And so the issue of limited atonement ultimately goes back to what was God's purpose in eternity in the covenant of redemption where the Father covenants with the Son and the Holy Spirit to bring about God's plan of salvation. Did God from all eternity propose to send His Son into the world to die on the cross, and then God would hope that somebody would take advantage of that? Did He not know from all eternity everybody's name, who would embrace Jesus and who would not? Did He send His Son to die to make salvation possible? Or did He send His Son to die to make salvation certain? The doctrine of limited atonement says that God knew what He was doing from all eternity. He constructed a plan of salvation, and in perfect agreement with Him, the Son came into the world to die for those whom the Father gave Him knowing that those whom the Father gave Him would come to Him, and that His atonement would not be an exercise in futility or simply an exercise in hypothetical possibility that perchance somebody might be saved. No. The Son knew from all eternity that there would be a people saved as a result of His sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit knew from eternity all those whom He would apply that work of the Son for salvation. Well, again, what does this mean about a universal offer? You know how the language of evangelism is in our day. The most famous is, comes in the four spiritual laws where you come up to somebody and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you want to talk about honest evangelism. What if you're talking to Judas? God loves you, Judas, and has a wonderful plan for you. Your destination is eternity in hell. Isn't that wonderful? It's not a wonderful plan. And the Bible tells us that there is a certain sense, as I've told you before, that God loves everybody indiscriminately in terms of His love of benevolence and His love of beneficence. But the love that He gives to those who are redeemed that is a love within His Son, the love of complacency, is limited only to believers. And the Bible does say that God abhors the wicked. But that's all right. We go and tell everybody indiscriminately that God loves them, and He even loves them unconditionally. And we call that the universal offer of the gospel. No. 
The universal offer of the gospel is this, that we are to proclaim to every living creature the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know who's numbered among the elect. That's up to God. And I can tell you, you cannot know you're not elect until you die. You can know that right now you're not a believer, and you may conclude from that that since you're not a believer now, you must not be numbered among the elect, but you may not come to faith until your last breath on this planet. Just like the thief on the cross was numbered among the elect, but he didn't know it until his dying breath. And so we are called, as the apostle tells us here, to go to the four corners of the world and to preach the gospel. In that sense, there is to be at least a universal proclamation of the gospel. A universal proclamation of the gospel. And if what we mean by a universal offer is a universal proclamation, then I have no problem with the term universal offer. But I want to come back to that to a minute. The next thing I want to say is that every time we say the creed, the Apostles' Creed, we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Early on in church history, the great uh, creed said that we, the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. The four marks of the church historically are its unity, its sanctity, its catholicity, and its apostolicity. Take away the apostolic word, you don't have the church. Take away its sanctity by the Holy Spirit, you don't have the church. Take away its unity with Christ, you don't have the church. And take away the Catholicity, and you don't have the church. We are just one tiny, infinitesimal fragment of the church of Jesus Christ meeting here tonight. There are churches all over the city of Orlando that are part of the body of Christ. There are churches all over the United States of America that are part of the body of Christ. But guess what? The church goes over the borders of the United States. The church is in Hungary. The church is in the Ukraine. The church is in Malawi. The church is in Peru. The church is in Iran. The church is in every nation of the world. This voice has gone out to all of the world. It wasn't limited to Israel. It wasn't limited to the Mediterranean world. The voice of the gospel has gone to every corner of the planet. And there are people from every tongue and tribe and nation right now incorporated into the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we say the church is Catholic. It's not limited to one denomination or to one nation, be it Israel or America. The church is everywhere because God has reserved for His Son people from every corner of the world. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Now back to this business about the universal offer 
of the gospel. Let's get technical for a second. To whom is the gospel offered? To everyone indiscriminately? No strings attached? Is it an unconditional offer to every human being? Mm -mm. The good news is only offered to those who believe. If you are not willing to put your faith in Christ, then the gospel's not offered to you. Again, it's proclaimed universally, but the benefits of the gospel are only offered to those who believe, who hear the Word and are brought to faith in and through the Word. But Isaiah, he said, is very bold. And he said, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who do not, did not ask for me. This whole business about structuring worship for seekers, for unbelievers, was a major topic of discussion that we had this past week at our National Pastors Conference. Obviously, the overwhelming majority of churches in the United States, and particularly evangelical churches, have embraced the new strategy, the new method of church growth, of constructing worship for seekers. I've labored that point to you so you're tired of hearing it, that the Bible says that outside of regeneration, no person in their natural state seeks after God. And as we said at the conference, if you want to structure your worship for seekers, then you structure your worship for believers. Because the seeking of the kingdom of God, which is the main business of the Christian life, doesn't start until you're converted. Again, people out there who are not Christians are desperately trying to find the benefits that only Christ can give them, but all the while fleeing from Jesus. And so, Paul, quoting the Old Testament, says from Isaiah, I was found by those who did not seek me. Have you found God? Did you find the Lord after a rigorous pursuit of Him in your pagan experience? Is that what Paul was looking for on the road to Damascus when the bright light knocked him from his horse? Oh, you're just what I was looking for, Jesus. No, he was looking for Christians so that he could take them and throw them into prison and kill them. I'll never forget my own conversion, dear friends. The last thing in the world I was seeking was Jesus until he found me. And once he found me, then I wanted to know everything I could find out about him. That's what made me want to go to church, was to learn more, to learn more. This past week, I heard some of the best preaching I've ever heard in my life. 
and one of them was from a text that we haven't come to yet in Romans, and I can't wait to get to that text so I can steal everything I heard from one of the other speakers. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I got a request this last week that touched me deeply. A church that I consider a sister church of ours, St. Paul's, is now without a pastor. They are suffering from serious financial shortfalls. They are struggling. They've had to lay off staff. And the session of that church met, and they sent a call to me, and they said, R.C., is there any way you could come and preach for us? in the next couple of weeks. Our people are downcast. They're discouraged. It was kind of, will you come over to Macedonia and help us? I was one of the founding members of St. Paul's. And I believe that the city of Orlando desperately needs St. Paul's. Church. Uh, I was at a Presbytery meeting. I've told you about it where People were talking about worship, and they talked about the way in which everybody was moving to a contemporary mode of worship except for the two churches that were extremists, St. Paul's and St. Andrew's, were the extremists. And St. Paul has, has been valiant in protecting classical worship in that church. And, and so they asked me if I would come and preach. Well, what could I say? There was only one possible answer. Of course, I'll go and preach. Now, they're sending me a letter of what they want me to speak about and uh, what their needs are and all of that kind of stuff. But all I can think about, or all I've been thinking about for the past several days is if in the problems of God I go to that church and can bring any word of encouragement to those folks there, what will I want that word of encouragement to be? They don't have a pastor. They're looking for a senior minister. What do they need in a senior minister? You know what, folks? I know what they And I'm going to encourage them to acquire what they need. Now, I have been out of touch with the life of that church for the last several years, so I don't know what's going on in the, in the congregation, what's going on in the center of the church. I don't need to know the answer to that question to know what their most important need is. Because it's the same need that is the number one need of any Christian church in the world. It's the need for biblical preaching. I don't care whatever else you have. You can have the best young people's program, the best singles program, the best counseling program. If you don't have biblical preaching, you have nothing. And if you do have biblical preaching, 
There are other things that are desirable. But that's all you need. And I had that reinforced to me this past week by other men in the ministry. One man preached on Paul's final admonition to Timothy, where Timothy was writing from the maritime prison, which was a piece of rock hewn out of the ground that had been used in Rome as a cistern to hold water. You had to go down the stairs, and it was about 15 by 15 of a space carved out of solid rock and about seven feet high. And there, Paul, awaiting execution in the darkness where it's cold and it's wet, he writes his last epistle to his beloved Timothy. He asked Timothy to get to come before winter. He asked Timothy to bring his parchments and bring his coat. If you've ever been in the maritime prison, you'd know why Paul asked for his cloak. But here is Paul now, writing his last message, his last exhortation to his beloved disciple, Timothy. And when he gets near the end of the epistle, he says to them, Timothy, I solemnly beseech you. Timothy, my son, I can't be any more serious. This is the most solemn business with which you have to do. Timothy, preach. Now, he didn't stop there. He didn't say, Timothy, the one responsibility I'm leaving you with as my disciple is to preach. That's not what Paul said. Because if all Paul said was, Timothy, you have to preach, Timothy could have had his marching orders to go ahead and give weekly commentary on the political situation in America or in Rome. He could have given pop psychology lessons. He could have preached through a method of entertainment. But that's not what Paul said to his disciple. He said, Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. What does that mean? Preach the Bible. The Bible is the written Word of God. Paul was not saying, Timothy, whatever you stand up to preach, make sure you have a text that you read before you go off on any tangent that you want to. No, what Paul was talking about was expository preaching. And expository preaching, beloved, is looking at the text of Scripture and exposing it, making it bare, making it clear to the people. The great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge said at the end of his life, I never had a novel idea 
He was determined to know nothing except what he had learned. My opinions are worthless to you. They are not the power of God unto salvation. What is the power of God is the Word of God. And Paul said, Timothy, preach the Word. In season and out of season. So when is the Word in season? Well, preach the Word in the winter, but you can take a vacation in the summer because it's the off-season for the Word of God. No. Preach it in season and out of season. That means what? Preach the Word all the time. There is no other season than in season or out of season unless it's open season on the minister who preaches the Word. That's part of what it means to preach the Word. Be ready, he said, at any moment to open the Scriptures for the people of God. Is this any different than the mandate Jesus gave to Peter before Jesus ascended, Peter, do you love me? Of course I love you. Then counsel my sheep. Manage my sheep. Don't you poison my sheep. And don't you take pablum and give it to the adult sheep. You give milk to the little lambs, and you give meat to the adult sheep. But your job, Peter, is to take care of my sheep. They're my sheep. They're not your sheep. And you are called to feed them. Feed them with what? You know, when I go to church when I'm on the road and I'm not able to be here and over the many years that that happened, when I came into church on Sunday morning, I just wanted one thing. I wanted to hear a word from God. And here it is, right here. That means expository preaching. If you ever go to another church, if you're ever on a pulpit committee, if you ever are in uh, the board of deacons or the session or whatever group is uh, ruling the church, make sure that whatever else happens, that you have expository preaching every Sunday morning. The text is what you're hearing because that's what we need. I was found by those who did not seek me. 
I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. And I was found because my word went out to all of the earth, and I was made manifest because my character and my plan was revealed through the word. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You remember earlier when Paul said, when he said there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, they're both under sin, and he brought them both up before the tribunal of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he pointed out that he was a Jew who's one inwardly and that nobody's saved by circumcision. And after going through all of the failures of Israel, he asked the question, what then, is there any advantage in being a Jew? Remember what he said? What good is it to be a Jew if my circumcision doesn't save me? If my Jewish biology doesn't save me? If being a descendant of Abraham doesn't get the job done, well, then what good is it being a Jew? What did he say? Much. In every way. Because to the Jew was given the oracles of God. What advantage was it to be a Jew? The Jew had the Scripture. I told you I was converted when I was 18 years old, freshman in college, and I came from abject paganism. Nevertheless, I'd gone to church all my life. It's the most liberal church in the city. And why I went to church was two reasons. One, because my parents made me go, and two, it's because it was the social center of our community. I learned to dance in the church. My first date with Besta was at a church dance. And the minister preached every Sunday, and I sat in the pew every Sunday, and I listened to sermon after sermon. After I sang in the choir. But I never read the Bible, nor did I hear it preached from the pulpit. But you know, every Sunday morning, despite the theological views of the preacher, the reading of the text of Scripture was part of the liturgy. In spite of himself, the man was giving us the Word of God in the reading of the text. I never read it for myself. I never went home and opened up a Bible and studied it, but all those years before I was led to Christ, God the Holy Spirit was bombarding me with His Word because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. This is why 
we try to get as much word in here as we can. We don't just give the exposition on Sunday night. We don't just give the exposition on Sunday morning. But now we've added to it using the psalm in the pastoral prayer so that you're hearing the Word of God in the pastoral prayer. And now we've added to it an Old Testament reading so you're hearing of the Word of God even without exposition, just the simple hearing of the Word of God. Did you hear it this morning? Of the manna that came from heaven? How God nurtured and fed His sheep in the wilderness by providing bread from heaven. And he said, don't forget that. Take some of that. We're going to preserve it. We're going to put it in the Ark of the Covenant so that people will know generation after generation after generation that the Lord God omnipotent fed His people with bread from heaven until such moment that one would stand up in the midst of his people and saying, I am the bread of life. The Old Testament Scripture pointed beyond itself, beyond to the manna that was gathered from the dew of the earth to the manna that comes down from heaven to feed his sheep. There's a conspiracy here, a divine conspiracy with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They're all working together in and through the Word. The Spirit does not divorce Himself from the Word. There are people all over the place that want to be led by the Spirit without the Word. And they can't distinguish between the leading of God and indigestion because they have nothing to check their desires, to inform their inclinations and their hunches because God the Holy Spirit leads and teaches in the Word, through the Word, and never against the Word. And faith comes from hearing. Hearing from the Word of God. Let me ask you tonight. Have you ever heard God through His Word? When the Bible is expounded to you, does it tickle your ears or does it inflame your soul? Does the Spirit of God take this Word and bother you with it, pierce you with it, comfort you with it, strengthen you with it? encourage you with it? Beloved, there's nothing else. I have nothing else to give you. You have other needs, I can't help you. You know what would bring revival in this country? If every church in America would say, 
I'm never going to ask the minister again to administrate the church. I'm never asking him again to be responsible for the finances of the church. I'm never asking him to be a corporate manager of the church. But what I want is somebody who will feed me the Word of God. If every church in America would major in that task, if the Word of God were preached in an expository manner every Sunday morning in our midst, would blow the lid off this country because that's where the power is. Not in our programs, not in our buildings, not in our parking lot, in the Word. Let's pray. Father, give us a hunger and thirst that cannot be quenched to know your word. And give us preachers who will not tickle our ears, but who will be preachers who love your word and who love your sheep enough to give your word to them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.